0: Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for being here today. My name is Gibson. I'm the pastor of this church and uh, glad that uh, that you're here this morning to worship. And we're going to read in the book of Hebrews. So, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Hebrews. If you don't have a Bible, there may be one in the pew in front of you. And if you're looking for the book of Hebrews, if you go all the way to the end of the book, you'll hit Revelation and then just take a left turn, maybe four or five little books and you'll run into the book of Hebrews. We've been in this series for the past couple of months, and and I charted it out. It looks like this series will carry us through into January uh, if I I just stay on task and just keep rolling. Uh, And so that's my goal. I'd love to finish the book of Hebrews that we started over the summer, and so we're going to try to do that. This morning we are in chapter 6, so we're not quite to the halfway point, or maybe we will hit the halfway point this morning. But we're going to look at verses 9 through 20. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 20. Let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the fact that it has endured for all these centuries, for all these generations. uh, Through all these people groups from all around the world, uh, so many have benefited from the hearing and reading of your word. We thank you that this is not an American invention. It has nothing to do with our culture. It reveals something about you from eternity. And so we thank you for that, that it is uh, timeless and enduring. Your word says that the word of God shall endure forever. And so we give you glory for that. There's nothing clever that I can say to dress up your word that will be Uh, lasting. Only your word that is spoken this morning will last. And so we thank you for that. There is uh, staying, enduring power there. And so we pray in Jesus' name that you would speak to us by your word. That your Holy Spirit would speak to us. And we thank you for this. In Jesus' name. Amen. I thought that was God calling for a second. (laughs) Just somebody forgot to silence their phone. That's all right. Well, well, let's look at uh, at Hebrews chapter 6, and we're going to start in verse 9. This is a continuation from the uh, line of thought that he started in chapter 5, verse 11, where he was into this great discussion about the high priest Melchizedek and how Jesus filled in this role and and came from this line of Melchizedek. But then he had to stop the conversation in chapter 5, verse 11, because he said, uh, not everybody... Is, is understanding this, and so he's taking this break uh, from 5.11 to 6.20. Uh, in the middle of this argument about Melchizedek, he's just stopping to say, some of you don't get this, and some of you need to grow in your understanding of this, and so we're continuing that thought in verses 9 through 20. If you need to get caught up, um, all the messages up to this point are on our website at ridgeline.cc, and I encourage you to, uh, to follow along if you've missed any of these, so that you can stay up to date uh, on the messages. So beginning in verse 9 of chapter 6, the word says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook all of your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire for each one of you to show the same earnestness to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Many people that would have heard this first read to them, Maybe this was a sermon that was delivered uh, to a a Jewish community, a mixed community of Christ followers and people who weren't yet Christ followers. Many people who would have heard this would have understood all these different references that were being made. But most assuredly, the audience that this is directed to is different than the audience that we looked at last week. Last week... Verses 1 through 8 were directed to those who were not yet believers. To those who had sat in church, to those who had been raised in church, to those who had maybe had a cultural expression of Christianity, but had never uh, experienced or, or set forth saving faith in Jesus Christ. They'd never given their life to Jesus. They'd never uh, put their faith in Christ. They, they had never followed Jesus, but they were, they were hanging around the church. And so he talked to them about their lack of security, that if they fall away, it's impossible to bring them back to the same point of repentance, that there's no way that they could hang around and experience the truth of God's word and the Holy Spirit and the changes that have taken place in God's people. There's no way that they could ever have more uh, confidence to put their faith in Jesus than they would at that very moment. And so it would be impossible for them to give their life to Jesus if they walked away from all of that witness. This week, the audience shifts. Now, he says in the very first verse, but to those who believe, for you, I'm confident of different things. And so there's a change in audience. And he wants to communicate really clearly in this passage that God's promise will be fulfilled. He's an oath-making, covenant-keeping, promise-fulfilling God that you can rest in. That's good news. Uh, And that's good news. And so we're going to understand why that's good news. Um, this past week, uh, you probably watched confirmations and hearings, and, and as you watch that, you see people in the background, don't you? They make funny faces, or they, they're on their phone checking something, and then somebody nudges them that they need to wake up, or they need to smile, or they need to do something different, or they make uh, expressions. You probably saw a lot of that this week during the, these confirmation hearings. Uh, and as we were doing that, I noticed one girl in particular. I never really watched the news. Um, Julie loves the news. I don't love the news. I get tired of it really quickly. But as we were watching, I said, I know that girl. Oh, I know that girl. I think I dated her a long time ago. And, and so I quickly like, got distracted from what was happening. I started to look up uh, who this person was and where I needed And I traced it back to... Uh, a young Life Camp. Ever Anybody ever heard of Young Life? I've been to Young Life Camp. I used to go to a Young Life Camp called Frontier Ranch in Buena Vista, Colorado. Anybody ever been there by chance? As a long shot. Uh, but it was such an incredible camp and I had so many great memories. I went back and I read through all these Different alumni notes. I watched a whole video, like a 20-minute video from the 90s, you know, of all the things that we did and all the styles. I made my kids watch some of it, too. Uh, And in some of the footage, I remembered there was this uh, enormous uh, 75-foot cliff uh, that hung off the side of Mount Princeton in the Collegiate Peaks. One of the the 14ers of Colorado, Uh, one of the 14,000-foot or higher Peaks, And we climbed that mountain, Mount Princeton, and got above the tree line and uh, took this six-hour hike and saw these amazing views and these incredible panoramic vistas and views and just gorgeous, gorgeous scenery. And I remember being up there as a 17-year-old and uh, the first time I had ever repelled. Has anybody ever repelled? Um, it's a terrifying experience, right? Uh, you stand up on the top of this thing and we're, we're thousands of feet above sea level and, and thousands of feet all around us, there are rocks and jagged edges and it's just a terrifying experience. And then you you clip into a rope and, and they tell you, just lean back and just kind of go backwards yeah, down the mountain. And, uh, and it's one of those uh, incredibly uh, terrifying experiences. And I remember... Uh, sitting up there, standing up there, and and being a little bit nervous. Right? It's a, it's a sheer face. It's it's a, a very flat, and and it's gorgeous. But but I'm facing backwards with my toes on the edge, uh, and and all I have is is this harness. And so once again, the instructor says, "Now this harness is safety rated for so many pounds, and and your little." you know, 16-year-old, 165-pound frame. It's not going to, you know, you're going to hold. This is going to hold you. And so he strengthened the straps and tightened everything, and he, he tied a figure-eight loop. And so he, he showed me how to do that, and he showed me how this knot is unbreakable. And this carabiner he clipped into himself is, is safety-rated for so many pounds and so much pressure. And then he, he hit another carabiner on there, and he was telling me all these things that were supposed to make me feel good about standing on the edge of a cliff and going backwards down the mountain. And it terrified me. It was still nerve-wracking despite all the safety talks and despite the safety equipment that I was wearing, the helmet and the gloves. And I was still about to go backwards down a mountain with a rope in my hand and very little instruction other than this rope and this stuff that he showed me. All the things that he talked about, the the rope, the knot, the belay system, the harness, all the techniques about how to go down and how to bound and how to keep perpendicular to the cliff face and not to go straight up and down and just kind of dangle and flop against the rocks. Everything that he told me, uh, I understood and I, I got to it, but I still had a hard time going down because I wanted to know what was it anchored to, right? I wanted to know, What's it tied to? Now, in years, I've I've rappelled a lot, and I've seen guys tie a rope off on a root that's hanging out of the side of a cliff. I've seen uh, guys put a pickup truck on top and tie it to the hitch of their truck. Uh, I've seen people tie it around trees, tie the rope around trees. I've seen bear grills make a loop in the snow and throw the rope around the snow and and rappel backward. I wanted to know what is this thing connected to. It's not connected to this college kid who assures me it's okay. It goes through him, but I wanted to know what's it connected to. And as he showed me what it was connected to, I saw two 10-inch bolts driven deep into the rock, feet behind, and that each one was rated enough to hold my frame. So because of that, I was able to go down and to have this incredible experience Uh, in the Colorado Rockies. it's really fantastic. What's most important? What's the anchor tied to? What's the anchor tied to? What's it going to hold? What's going to hold it uh, if things go wrong, if I'm dangling, if there's bad weather, if something happens, if the the rock gives way all around, what's going to hold me? That's what I needed to know. I remember about 10 years ago, a friend came to visit me, and as he came to uh, visit, he was just in personal crisis. Just recently experienced a divorce as a result of infidelity, he was losing a uh, business, was going in a different direction. Just everything in his life was chaotic, and everything in his life was, uh, was really bad, and all the circumstances were terrible. And this person who, who didn't yet know Jesus, I just watched the chaos and the crisis just rip his life apart. At the same time, there was a hurricane happening, and and I I began to read all these stories about anchors and guys who can anchor these boats in the midst of a hurricane, Uh, and in the midst of that, I just made this spiritual connection that was just welded to my soul, that when there are storms that kind of rage all around you, that in Jesus Christ, we have this sure and steady anchor. That though everything can go wrong in your life, you can be grounded in Jesus Christ. That everything around you could explode and be terrible. Personal crisis all around. Think of Job, right? He loses his family, he loses his, his possessions, he loses everything. He loses uh, everything in a matter of moments. And yet in the midst of that, he has a strong anchor, a foundation for his soul. Julie and I have friends that we've watched over the years Friends that I've talked about before because their story is so public, their suffering is so public, their crisis is so so public. Friends like Jamie Walker who lost a son in a, a torrent, a, a rainstorm that swept him under a street gutter and took his life at age 12. Friends like the, the Freemans who lost their young son Trey. Uh, Trey was uh, lost to leukemia, I believe, some sort of cancer and, and died at a young age and then Her mother died, and then there was another death in their family. And then just last year, one of their older sons was hit by a truck merging onto the highway and has had a traumatic brain injury. And through all of this, I've often said, Lord, how how much can he take? How much can they handle? Why do you allow this sort of affliction to happen? And yet, as I've watched them closely, as I've watched them very closely, their hope grows. Their faith increases. Their, their joy in Jesus Christ, regardless of their terrible circumstances, it grows. Their faith strengthens. Their hope never fades. So what can this text that we just read, what can it teach you about having a firm anchor for your soul? If you feel like you're tossed around by the wind and the waves and the storms of life, if, if your life is in turmoil, if, if personally, uh, maybe even just inside, you're struggling with mental issues or struggles or difficulties or doubt or confusion, or you just don't know what's going on, and you, you want to have this sort of anchor that I'm talking about, how can we understand this passage? What can it teach us about this firm anchor? Well, let's take another look at our text and we're going to make some comments about some of these passages so that you can walk away this morning echoing this passage that we have a firm anchor for our soul, that we can hold fast to the hope that we profess in Jesus Christ. Look back at chapter 6, verse 9. He says, even though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. You may have doubted last week during the sermon that verses one through eight were directed to non-believers, but if there's any doubt now, this verse nine kind of helps put that to doubt, to put that doubt to rest, because it describes really clearly a change in audience. In your case, beloved, that's a term of affection for the believers in the room. In your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. What are the better things? They're in contrast to the couplets, the three couplets that were described last week. The three things that were attributed to non-believers. The repentance from dead works, the basic elementary doctrines about the future coming of the Messiah, uh, the laying on of hands, the, the different washings, all the Old Testament laws that were meant to show them who Jesus was. Now this audience, he's saying, but for you guys that are saved, the beloved in the room, I am confident of... Better things, things that belong to salvation, not those things that don't belong to salvation. He is giving them a clear transition in the audience. uh, And so this distinction in who is being addressed signals that this is now uh, for the redeemed in the room. For those of you who have given your life to Jesus Christ, these verses apply to you. And I, I hope you didn't miss it as we read the text. He uses language of confidence and assurance. In verse 9, he says, we feel sure of the things that belong to salvation. In verse 11, he says that you may have the full assurance of hope until the end. Verse 12, he says that those who through faith and patience will inherit the promises. In verse 13, he says, God made a promise. Now, when God makes a promise, it's sure. But when God makes a promise and he swears by himself, it is double sure, okay? Uh, God doesn't need to swear by anything. But when he says in Genesis chapter 22 that I swear by myself, Abraham, I will not keep you from being a blessing to the world and to the nations that through your lineage will come the Messiah and the hope of all the nations. God made that promise sure in A.D. when Jesus Christ was born, Right? In the year of our Lord, when Jesus Christ was born, that fulfillment of the promise that he gave to Abraham, way back in Genesis 12, way back in Genesis 22, was made sure. But God made a promise and he swore by himself. In verse 15, uh, Abraham actually obtained the promise in the son who was born in his old age. What was the son's name? Isaac. Good. Uh, After Isaac was born, Abraham obtained the promise. Verse 16 says, this was an oath that is final for confirmation. Verse 17, God desired to show more convincingly the unchangeable character of his purpose and he guaranteed it with an oath. Verse 18, by two unchangeable things. Now, if you don't pick up on all the secure language there, he is talking about the security, the anchor of our soul. He's talking about the one who makes a promise and the one who will keep the promise regardless of how you and I think about it, if God makes a promise, it is sure. You can have confidence in your salvation. You can have confidence in your salvation. He's saying, um, for those of you who are in Christ, I'm sure of better things. What are these better things that he talks about in verse 9? Well, they're different things than what he described for the unbelieving crowd, to the churched crowd who had not yet personally put their faith in Jesus. He described a different thing for them. But for those things that are better, he's talking about the, the basics of the gospel. What does it look like with, with Jesus? When you've given your life to Jesus, there are better things that grow up in your life. Verse eight, 7 and 8 from last week said um, that the rain that falls on good land produces a good harvest. And so there are fruits from your life when you become a, a Christ follower. There is joy that springs out from you. There is um, love that you can't explain. I'll never forget just a few weeks after giving my life to Christ and filling my um, time with prayer and studying the Word in just a very elementary, basic way as a brand new believer who was from an atheistic, immoral background, um, reading this passage about how God can bring joy. And I'll never forget just seeing a group of kids laughing and the and smile came to my, uh, my face. And I, it was just unexplainable why I took joy in something so simple. But it was a real testament to my soul that something was changing deep within me. That God was birthing something new in my heart that was different. When Jesus becomes your Savior, when you put your personal faith in Him, the better things are the things that grow out of that new soil. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord of my life in my career? Why am I a different business person? Why are you a different uh, person in your career because of your faith in Jesus? Why are you a different parent because of your faith in Jesus? Why are you a different student when your faith is in Jesus? What makes you say no to temptation? What makes you not cheat or not do things that other people do? What makes you a law-abiding citizen who never speeds, right? Right? Who never rolls red lights and stop signs. What makes us that way? Well, it's certainly not a righteousness of our own, but but when you give your life to Jesus, it affects every area of your life. Your career, your language changes, your marriage, your parenting, your addictions. He speaks into your past, all the regrets that you've carried up to this point. He's able to bring hope and peace and put some of those issues to rest. He changes your finances, your sex life, your health, your hobbies and your recreation and your rest. Your generosity, the way you approach helping people, the servant-like nature that he imparts to you so that you're willing to give service to people, uh, the scars, the wounds, the pain, all the bitterness, the hurts that you bring in to, to here every week. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, there is new soil that affects all of those things, and the seed that grows up is good soil. It's good stuff that comes out of that ground. And that's how you begin to know and have the security that you are in Christ. Those are the better things. Those are the things that he wanted to keep talking about. But he had to stop because there were unbelievers and people who had not yet put their faith in Jesus. They were trusting in a culture. They were trusting in their parents' faith. They were trusting in a denomination. They were trusting in something other than their own maybe self-righteousness. Maybe they felt like they were good enough on their own, but all those things that they were trusting in did not impart to them the blessings of salvation. He goes on in verse 10 to say that God's not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints like you still do. What's he saying there? He's saying that that even if at times you don't have confidence in your own salvation, that there are works that you can look back on that are the fruit of faith and repentance. You you put your faith in Jesus, and it caused you to do good things. It caused you to do good works, not as a means for salvation, but as a result of your salvation. You got saved, so you did good works. That's James chapter 2, if you're struggling with that notion of how works and faith go hand in hand. Faith comes first. Faith comes first and then works follow as a natural overflow of all the good that God has done for you. And he's saying in verse 10 that that God's not unjust to overlook the good works that you've done and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And if you remember back to the first message way back in June from Hebrews chapter 10, this group of believers has been through it. Some of them were afflicted. Some of them were drug off into prison. Some of them had their possessions looted and taken. Some of them were even martyred for their faith in Jesus. And these people who are listening now, they remember that. They remember the people who used to sit in their fellowship who were now dead or had passed on or were still in prison or still had missing limbs or scars on their body. They remember the people who were in their fellowship who had stood up for Jesus Christ and they watched how they endured through that And so he's saying, God's not unjust as to overlook all of that. You showed love for his name and you served those saints and you still persist in doing that. That's evidence of your salvation. That's means of which that demonstrate that you've been saved. He encourages them in in verse 11, we desire for you to show the same earnestness so that you may have the same full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience and inherit the promises. You know what it feels like to be sluggish? I, I do, I do, you can tell. I, I know what it means to be sluggish and to go into lazy habits and to, to, to fall away from disciplines that you've long held. There was a time when I was memorizing dozens of scriptures a month and had stacks of cards of Bible memory and was just uh, spending tons of time in the Word. And There were, there were so many times in my past where I can look at moments of self-discipline and there are moments of time in my life that I look at a snapshot and I can see less self-discipline and more sluggishness. It reminds us that, that the walk of faith is just that. It's a walk. It's not a sprint. It's more like a marathon. And those who endure, those who persist, those who hold fast is the word he uses here. Back in Hebrews 2, he said, be imitators and don't be sluggish and hold fast to your faith. Regardless of what's happening around you and and the difficulties that you're struggling with in your faith, hold fast, endure, persevere. So he's telling them to show that same earnestness and that full assurance so that you wouldn't be sluggish, but you would be imitators of those who finish the race. Remember, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. It's those who finish the faith that make a difference. Then he goes into this description of Abraham, and he uses Abraham as an example. Abraham was given a promise in Genesis 12. Do you remember that? Genesis 12, he says, Abram, I want you to go from this land and Ur of the Chaldees. I want you to go to the place that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to what? I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you children. That was when Abram was 75 years old. At 75, he he set out on this long journey. And through all of his wanderings and through all of his travels and through all this time that he's following God and he's, walking with him, and he's holding on to this promise in our head. You can read Genesis 12 to 22 to, to Genesis 39 where it starts off with Joseph. You can read all about the life of Abram in about 30 minutes if, if you're committed. You just get through those 10 or 20 chapters. You can just plow through it. But that doesn't help us understand the timeline of his life. You know, Abram heard from God a number of 8 or 10 times directly. But in between that, there were all these decades... Where he just faithfully followed the last word of God. Do you know how long it took for God to fulfill his promise to Abram? 25 years. 25 years. Abram was 100 years old. His wife was 90 when she gave birth to Isaac. That's a long time to wait for a promise of God. How long have you waited for a promise that God has given you about something? Maybe you're praying for a family member. Maybe you're uh, praying for a spouse. Maybe you're praying for a wayward child. Or maybe you're praying for parents or someone with an illness. How long until God uh, fulfills the word that you felt like he gave to you? Maybe he spoke to you about a situation and you have yet to experience the blessing of that promise. We have all these temporal promises that God may make to us as we walk with him. I can think of a few Promises that I felt like God has spoken to me clearly about. The latest in which was, uh, for years I've been offered positions that would appeal to my um, human nature. Uh, offers of jobs in my hometown, uh, where I grew up, near our family. and, and it, For these last, this last decade that we've been a stranger in a strange land of Pennsylvania, uh, for this last decade, I've had all these opportunities to go back home. All these opportunities to take out other jobs. And at every turn, the same little passage in Jeremiah always pops up whenever a job comes up. It's that, if you stay in the land, I will plant you and not uproot you. I will build you and not tear you down. I can remember having a great job offer, driving to Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, we were on our way home. And as I'm praying about this job offer, the fourth time God brought this passage up with me, a job offer at the same time. I stopped by this little church in Kentucky and we went to the Wednesday night Bible study and I went into just a random room that had 10 or 12 classes to choose from and I went into one and the pastor, uh, or the small group leader said, open your books, uh, Bibles to Jeremiah and he began to read the same passage. Almost 10 jobs I've turned down or stopped the process because of a promise that God has I felt it and in my soul that if you stay here, I will plant you and not uproot you. I will build you and not tear you down. Do I feel planted? Do I feel built up? No, I don't. Sometimes I mow my yard twice because I'm having extra prayer where I'm arguing with God about things that I thought he was going to do that he just didn't do. Have you ever felt a promise that God has not fulfilled and you continually bring it back to him and say, what about this? Abram waited 25 years for the son of promise. Only to have God tell him in Genesis 21 and 22, hey, I want you to take Isaac, your only son Isaac, the son that you love. I want you to put wood on. And I want you to go to the mountain that I'm going to show you and I want you to sacrifice him on the altar. The child of promise. And I want you to go. And he does it and God says, stop. I, stop. I don't want you to do this. I can see that you're willing to obey me, that you've not withheld your son, your only son. You know, I was mad at God the first time I read that passage. How can you do that to Abram? Make a promise to him, give him the promise, and then tell him to sacrifice the thing that you promised him? And yet Hebrews will tell us in chapter 11 that that, that Abram believed that God would resurrect Isaac if he killed him. His faith in God was better than the promise that he had. He held on to his faith in God because God was this anchor for his soul. You may have been holding out for a promise that God made to you. Ultimately, we're all hoping for this promise of eternity, for a promise of heaven, that our faith is in Jesus Christ and we've sold out to everything else. It's going to say in this passage that we have fled to refuge we have fled for refuge, verse 18. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have fled to Jesus Christ for refuge from the punishment of sin. Romans 3 says that we're all sinners. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, says. But we who have fled for refuge in Jesus Christ, we are holding on to this promise that he rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for us, and that He will one day come back and take us to be with Him. That's the confidence that we have. And each day, no matter what we go through, our confidence grows as we anchor our soul to Jesus Christ. Let me close with this encouragement for you. If you've never placed saving faith in Jesus Christ, Saving faith is not the same as acknowledgement of fact. You understand what I mean by that? I can look at that stool there, and it's a fact, I hope, that if I sat in it, it would hold me up, that it wouldn't topple over, that I'm not heavy or whatever. I look at the three legs. I can look at that and acknowledge the fact that I think that thing will hold me, but that's not the same as transferring my trust, is it? What does it mean for me to transfer my trust? I've got to go sit in it. I've got to take all the weight off my feet, and I've got to put all the weight on the object that I am trusting in. Do you know how many people say from a distance, say, I think that Jesus Christ can hold me. I think that he can do a better job of running my life than I can. But they're never willing to walk over and transfer their trust. They're acknowledging a fact, Jesus is God, that he rose from the dead, that he's sitting by God's hand, by God's right side right now that he's uh, going to come back for us. They can acknowledge all those facts, but it's not the same as saving faith. Saving faith is the transfer of personal trust. And it's a gift that God gives people to put their trust. It's the same as when I'm repelling and I'm going to lean back on this rope. All of my weight is now in one place. And I've got to transfer all my trust to that rope and it's going to hold my weight. Listen. The object of faith is more important than your feelings of faith. No matter how strongly I feel, if I'm being held by a piece of twine and I'm dangling off a cliff, no matter how I feel about that rope, it doesn't matter if that rope is not anchored to something stronger. And you must transfer your trust for saving faith onto someone. Not yourself. And not the feelings you have or not the knowledge that you carry or not your moral decisions or your self-righteousness. Your trust has to transfer from whatever you're trusting in right now onto Jesus Christ. And he alone is the strongest anchor of the soul. The only one who can go behind the curtain into the most holy place and pay the penalty for our sins. So acknowledging fact is not the same as having saving faith. And I want you to see the distinction, and I pray that God gives you discernment to know if I am just acknowledging facts or if I have saving faith in Jesus Christ. I'm praying that God gives you that assurance. The second thing I want to close with in in application for you is um, promises and God's fulfillment. If you're waiting on something, if you're waiting for God... Maybe you're hoping for deliverance. Maybe you're hoping for victory. Maybe you're hoping for a prayer that you prayed for years for somebody. I want to encourage you just to maintain and and trust in the God of promises. He is a promise-keeping God. He fulfills his oaths. He swears by himself. And to the degree to which he's promised you is to the degree to which that he will fulfill his word to you. You know, as a church, we are taking steps of faith. As a church, we're walking together in really kind of an experiment in faith. This is unprecedented for two congregations. Ridgeline has never merged with Rock Hill, and Rock Hill has never merged with Ridgeline. This is one enormous uh, step of faith that two churches have taken. And both the churches, at times people say, is this going to work? Can we really trust that this is going to go forward? Do we agree with each other? Can we actually merge together? Is it a reason? Is there a reason that we've come together? Is there a bigger purpose? So, both groups, both groups of believers are walking together saying, God, we're trusting in you to do something bigger. I want to close with this uh, hymn story. You've probably heard the hymn. You may not have heard the hymn story. Hymn writer Edward Moat, uh, his parents managed a, a pub in London, and he grew up outside of church, outside of faith, just kind of hanging out in the pub. That's how he grew up, and when he finally was converted and came to faith in Jesus uh, at age 18, he began to grow in his faith, and in his 50s, he accepted a call from God to go into his, into ministry, and he began a long, fruitful ministry in Horsham, uh, England, West Sussex, Horsham, West Sussex, England. And he was also a hymn writer, and one day he began to roll around this amazing um, lyric that was just stuck in his mind and he said um, in 1834 walking to work one day an idea popped into my head to write a hymn on the gracious experience of god for the christian and as he walked down the road he heard a chorus that resonated in his mind on christ the solid rock i stand all other ground is what all other ground is sinking sand by the end of the day He had the first four verses written out completely and tucked into his pocket. A few days later, he visited a friend whose wife was sick about to die. And as was his custom, he would go to visit people and he would sing a hymn with all those who gathered as they were about to pray together. And he had forgotten his hymn book and his friend didn't have a hymn book handy as well. And he took out the words. He said, I have a hymn in my pocket that I've just been Uh, rolling around and he began to pull it out. He passed, distributed a copy of it to everybody. And they began to sing this song. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus's blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus's name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging Grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ, finish it with me, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Jesus Christ is the firm anchor for your soul. No matter what crises or struggles you're going through right now, Jesus is willing. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He is a firm foundation for those in turmoil and for those... We're seeking peace with God. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for the word that you have spoken. We pray in Jesus' name that you would give us uh, the grace and the ability to express saving faith in you. Give us the uh, conviction for those in the room who have not yet demonstrated saving faith to repent from their self righteousness, to repent from their morality, to repent from their leaning on their culture on their church background, on their morality, on their Bible knowledge, on all the things that are not firm foundation. All of those things that are, in many ways, sinking sand. So we pray in Jesus' name that you would give us the grace and strength to repent from those things that are dead works, that you might cause believers and unbelievers all around the room to renew their faith in you, to hold fast to the promises that you have given We pray that you would do your work and have your way among us today. I trust that you're doing soul work all around the room. And we ask that you would continue that we may be found in Christ on the last day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.